everybody. Welcome back to the Resistance Broadcast. I'm John. Thank you for joining us on this Thursday or whenever you're listening or watching. Uh, it's our discussion show, and today is, there is one thing on the docket, as you probably saw in the title. Yeah, we're finally talking all about Light and Magic, the documentary all about the creation, formation, and legacy of ILM Industrial Light and Magic, created by the maker himself. George Lucas, so that he could make Star Wars, for which we wouldn't have a podcast. Um, <laughs> I'm John. Thank you for joining us. With me, as always, Lacey and James. Uh, Lacey, you, uh, we, we, I didn't try to talk too much about this uh, heading into it, but uh, you said you were brought to tears a couple times. So that that's that's a powerful mm-hmm. thing when when a documentary about special effects. And and what it, the story it tells can bring you to that point. So it, it sounds like the the documentary uh, had an impact on you. Yeah, I wasn't joking on like I said it in jest because we had said it in a, one of the news stories with Dave Filoni, but I did mean it. It was like a religious experience for me. It was such a good. It, it was more than I expected. I went in not knowing what to expect, which I find I've been enjoying content a lot better that way. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've lowered my expectations with a lot of things, and um, even if I had expectations, I feel like this would have led up to it anyway. But it, this behind the scenes stuff is always, to me, a lot of the times more impactful than the actual projects that people are working on. And I know that's like that's a bold statement to make. Like Lacey, they're talking about like the original trilogy and stuff and the prequels and whatnot. There's just something that's more important to me when it comes to. Uh, human connection and empathy and and success stories and hard work that just impact me more than fictional space stories so this this one meant a lot yeah now james i know you're out of the three of us anyway you're not the most into the history of the behind the scenes stuff with star wars um but heading so heading into this did you have any preconceived notions and, and coming out of it the uh, what were your takeaways and did did anything about it surprise your perception of it uh, after watching um yeah absolutely i mean i think that the way that it was handled was very well done because i often feel like when i watched shows like this they'll say hi i'm the person that invented thing and you're like wow that guy invented thing and then they like never bring that person back and i felt like this for six hour long episodes was like the same group of people practically the entire time um and you got to meet them and hang out with them and learn uh more and more and more what they've done and i actually I feel in a way like I've never really been drawn to the behind the scenes of Star Wars, but this has been probably the most impactful piece that has made me think like I'm missing out on something over there. It it felt it reminded me of what I like about Apple history and stuff like, oh, Steve Jobs did oh, blank, cool. you know, or yeah. um, Johnny. I they mentioned was him. There. Were you pumped? It, it, Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I knew <laughs> I knew some of that stuff. Like I obviously knew how he was involved with Pixar and all that. Mm-hmm, and we'll get into mm-hmm. that stuff as, as we move on. I don't know, man. I, maybe that won't get brought up again. But yeah, it made me feel 
like I should know more of this stuff and that there real there was yeah. some really cool stuff happening and oftentimes it gets overlooked and it made me rethink man I wish I would have watched six episodes of that and then did, went to that panel because I was in that room and thinking like I know maybe I've heard of maybe one of these people Right, you would have appreciated oh, wow. it more oh, being in the same time. room with them. Yeah, yeah. I get that. Yeah. I knew that yeah. Phil Tippett was like the dinosaur supervisor guy, but <laughs> right. like that—that that was it. Like that's the yeah. only you know thing that I like would have any sort of connection to him, really. Right, the Joe Johnston stuff. And sure. Yeah. 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 Dennis yeah. Mirren, so- yeah. So yeah, the, those are like yeah the the household names. If you feel like you know a lot about ILM and stuff like that. But then, you know, you hear names like uh, Ralston and, of course, John Dykstra, who really uh, is front and center in the first episode um, and was sort of like, you know, the the yin to George Lucas's yang in terms of, like, personalities. And even though they both had similar interests, but he was really, like, the the one running the operation while Lucas was over in the UK trying not to have a heart attack filming the actual uh, main portion of the movie. So it's funny you say that, James, about... And and just for our audience, like this is not going to be a segmented show. Uh, We're spending the show talking about this documentary because it's a six-hour documentary. And we don't have uh, pre-planned on, like, we're going to walk through this and this and this. We're just going to talk about it and see what comes to the surface. And I, I feel like when we have these conversations, we set off light bulbs in each other's heads on like things we like and, oh yeah, this, that, and the other. So it's going to be more of just an, an open chat, but about light and magic. Um, mm-hmm. And um, it's funny you said that, James, about I wish I could see the panel after having watched it because when I was at the panel, uh, hearing Lawrence Kazan talk about what, like the lens he made this from and why he made it, I took that into watching the series with me and I, that, and that's why it ends the way it ends. The ending of the series makes complete sense with what you had told me from that panel and what you'd brought up a couple times on episodes about how it was about Lawrence Kasten's kids and grandkids and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, for the Phil Tippett tie back at the end, I was like, Oh, Oh, there it is. Yeah. Yeah, That's 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 amazing, man. Especially, you know, everything that guy, you know, well, and, and just for people who weren't at the panel, I have talked about this on previous episodes, but Lawrence Kasdan essentially said he made this because he feels that kids today need to be inspired to be creative and without any direction. They need, just need to play. They need to just be. Yeah, they need to be. They need to uh, collaborate, work together, uh, just create things, be work with tangible things, use your hands and stuff, and just use your imagination. And he he made it for his grandkids for that reason because he thinks that stuff is lost today, and I think it is too, um, in a lot of ways, you know. But you know the 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 Phil Tippett stuff. If you look at like the third episode when he's talking about how this stuff like saved him from killing himself, and he meant that in a very literal sense. That that made me emotional. Um, hearing a guy like that who everyone sort of knows as this like uh, wacky ver- guy, yeah. very dry humored yeah quirky puppeteer nerd uh, to open up in that way at 70 years of age and saying he just recently realized that he's bipolar for one thing um, mm-hmm. is is wild because there's a lot of people 
who unfortunately don't get to realize that or, or meet that diagnosis and take their lives or, or something worse. And it's uh, hearing him open up that way. That shocked me. You know, I did not expect this documentary to go that deep and, and it did. And then when you take those moments from the documentary of him opening up that way to the end, like you say, Lacey, where you're talking about his daughter um, saying like, Oh, I just, you know, I, I don't know what I should be doing. I've, I've just been playing with these dinosaurs. And he's like, yes, play, you know, play. That's what you should mm-hmm. do. Yeah, Maya. Yeah, I I felt like the whole series really put a spotlight on Phil Tippett in a way that he truly deserved. Um, I also yes. yeah. liked how they didn't shy away from the fact that things didn't go perfectly and things never go perfectly, um, but that that the world is always changing and how the people within ILM and all the different players didn't necessarily get along perfectly and that not everybody agreed with the direction on certain things. Cause I feel like a lot of these times, a lot of a series like this or behind the scenes, like gallery, for example, there are moments that it just feels kind of like a puff piece, like a kind of like commercial for whatever Lucasfilm is working on. This didn't feel like that. It genuinely felt Mm -hmm. like, people being honest with what their experience was and what they learned from the goods, the bads uh, hearing from the model people was probably one of the most like heartbreaking things, especially Phil Tippett where Jurassic park was going to be like his big moment. And they Mm -hmm. were just like, actually we're going to go into the direction with computers, which ultimately that was the right choice because Jurassic park has standed the stood the test of time because of that stuff. But it it's crazy because like, if this, if this was a story, like if this six part series was a movie, it felt mm-hmm. like that Jurassic park moment was the absolute climax of everything. Yes. Like where it was so like, many this times, is the moment everything turns. Yeah. Yeah. So many times like things shifted and everything changed it or whatever. But like that exact moment was like, they made it very clear that cinema has had multiple times where like, you know, oh, this is going to change everything. But this literally is like so it's so edged in stone. Like it's the release of this movie, this moment when making the movie that everything changed. And it's not it didn't just change for Phil Tippett's life. Phil Tippett was just the king of that era of Hollywood, you know, and it's yeah. just, and it it's, kind of yeah. made me feel bad about the reason I know who Phil Tippett is, is like years and years and years ago in college, one of the big memes was dinosaur supervisor Phil mm-hmm. Tippett and people would be like, way to go, Phil, you had one job. You know, that was yeah. the big joke. And it was funny because everyone's like, who's a dinosaur supervisor? And then you hear the story behind why he was the dinosaur supervisor and what he went through and basically how he was like, I'm (laughs) extinct and my life is over. And you're like, oh, my God, I laughed at that. Like, I thought that was funny. And this guy's it was a very serious moment for him where he was, you know, really thinking about like this is the was supposed to be the peak of my career of like what I've been working for is hey computers are great but you can't do natural things you you know you can make the terminator guy and you can make water move but you can't put living breathing things natural things on camera and make them look realistic no, and then yeah. for spaz and that other guy to work really hard and be like now nah, we're going to do this in our free time and then surprise everyone and Phil Tippett was like uh, it looks it, it looks all right and like inside yeah. he's probably internally screaming because he's like <laughs> yeah like, it's like a mental breakdown but, collapse of everything right you know. 
that's what made Jurassic Park so great is that Spielberg realized I need all of these guys. I yes, need the yes. puppeteers. Yeah. I need the computer guys. Uh, because if you don't, then you get the new Jurassic Park stuff, which uh, I don't think looks as good. And you brought you brought up uh, Spaz, and it's funny because that I think that's the only interview in the entire six part documentary where you hear Lawrence Kasdan asking questions. And it's um, I hear he him laugh about... a lot. Yeah, but he asks him about like his military experience or something and he like goes, that. Yeah, no, and he's I can't like, tell you. Yeah, he's like, so can what? What do you mean when you say that? Can, what, what do you mean? Can you elaborate on that a little? And he's like, no. He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> you hear Lawrence yeah. laugh a lot actually throughout the series. Oh yeah, and they yeah. leave him in, which I appreciate. Yeah. But like there, there are moments though um, that because I I'm gonna be honest, guys. I blew through this series in like less than 24 hours. <laughs> I was like, I need to watch it for the show, and I did. Um, there are moments that it's very interesting where they clearly cut sound bites and mash them together to make them make sense like they normally do but like they cut them a little weird so like you can tell that they've sped up people's voices and stuff but the laughing with Lawrence Kasdan when he was talking to these people that he clearly knew really well was really endearing and I loved that and I loved how they had all this behind the scenes footage that they used that really kind of built the environment outside of people telling you they showed you but then they also included sound effects of like their parties and like people laughing and stuff kind of like ken burns effect where they like Mm -hmm. had an image on screen but then they're playing the sound of what that image might look like so it's giving you that kind of full 360 view of like what this moment would be like i really appreciated them i thought the whole thing was really well edited by by the way like you you pointed that out and i thought the i only noticed and it was probably the last episode where there was like an edit where i was like oh i could tell they cut something out there like and they just but overall like i'm being nitpicky though as someone from a background of that yeah for for me watching the whole thing i kept thinking like all the different rooms and camera angles and cuts and Mm -hmm. everything just Mm -hmm. looked really well done and i kept thinking it's surprising to me Anytime you can go and like, you have to do that first interview and that first interview, you don't know what everybody else is going to say. And even if you like planned out your documentary and like, this is, these are the types of questions I want to ask this person. You still don't necessarily know how you're going to edit together. And it really did seem like they all were leaning into each other. Like they knew what the next person was going to say in the next interview that followed them. Like the best sequence put together. Yeah, the best sequence was when George and John Knoll were talking back to back and he was putting in the clips of John Knoll being like, I'd come in and I'd be like, George, that's a lot of things. And George would be like, I tell him to just do it. And then they'd cut to John Knoll and he'd be like, I'd be like really nervous. And I'd be like, George, we really can't do this. And then it would cut Mm -hmm. to George and he'd be like, I just tell him it's okay. Just do it. Figure it out. And then John would be like, I'd have all these notes. Yeah. (laughs) Like I loved that exchange between them. I mean, Lawrence Kasdan, talk about like always ha- reading the room and having your finger on the pulse of like what should be done in any situation. And g- you, granted, you guys know like he's my hero and he's, I'm such a big fan of his. But starting the documentary off and almost every episode, if not every episode with George Lucas um, is the right choice because he created he invented ILM. And the reason why he invented ILM is because he realized he didn't have he didn't have what he needed to make Star Wars. So it's so funny that it was for star wars and hearing him say movies are special effects and things like that and hearing the story about his car crash and how that changed his life and his thought yeah, process. yeah i things. didn't and i didn't think i knew that 
I forgot about I'd heard it years ago, but I forgot about how severe it was and how he was in the hospital and they were and the first thing you heard was uh you're still gonna have your arms and legs, you know? And and, and it's just crazy to, to to think that he was, you know, in that situation and, and how much he loves like racing and basically like the his first idea about Star Wars was like hot rods in space and mm-hmm. I loved them talking about, you know, the the making of that and how simple the Star Wars as an idea was at the time. But I think what I love most is George Lucas uh just has the this like way of seeing the future before it happens and like almost creating the future before we can get to it and like that's why the prequels were done when they were done but putting together this team of people who he had heard of from John Dykstra who were like machinists and they weren't in the in Hollywood at all and he's just like it was like in those movies when they're like we need to put together a crew and they like go to this bar like Guardians and there's this of the one Galaxy guy and, yeah. or like Drillers. Armageddon for as a worse example <laughs> yeah. but yeah just putting together this these group of people and stuff and they're these people who don't know what they're doing it's fake it till I make it or like Phil Tippett saying like mm. I'm glad you came to me I don't, I don't really know that so let me call this guy and it's just this whole selfless thing they don't know what's impossible because they don't know what they're doing and no they're figuring egos. out yeah. as they go. That's the, such an inspiring thing. Because there's been so many times in my life where I'm like, I need to think of a reason why I can't do this because I'm afraid to do it. Mm-hmm. And hearing these people just dive into the pool, so to speak, uh, I'm like, man, like that's so freaking inspiring. Like I can't wait till my son's old enough to freaking he can watch this because. In George Lucas, like having that mindset, saying like, "I don't just want these Hollywood people who are going to tell me like they can't do something." He's like, "You can do it." Like it's like they joke around about that in the documentary, but it's like, he's like, "Just think about it for a while," or, you know, "Think of it this way," or, or just just let it stew on that for a little while and all that stuff. Because he put together these people who didn't know limitations, you know, because they didn't know what they were doing, and it and it wound, wound up working out. It was a complete mess for the first movie. But then when they transition to the second movie and they're like, this feels familiar. Okay. I like this. Let's take it to the next level. And you see Phil Tippett doing the stuff with the AT-ATs where he's going in from one, in from the other. You mean the AT-ATs? Yeah, I see. I I always said AT-ATs as a kid. Um, But (laughs) like, I'm sitting there watching this guy. I'm like, that is my nightmare stop motion stuff like i would lose my mind if i had to do that and then they shoot they turn to him and he's like i love this <laughs> it's just so i love seeing someone love doing something so much even though it, he's like breaking his back under these stages i, I just couldn't get enough uh, of that stuff and, and the fact that uh kazan knew to focus on lucas and 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 how they how he put it together like i think that that's why the first two episodes might be my favorite just seeing how it all like existed while like sort of like given the finger to Hollywood, which is George Lucas is like the most rebellious filmmaker of all time. He's like, screw the director's guild, screw your visual effects unions and stuff. I'm putting together machinists and people, these people who do weird abstract things and they're going to become my team. I'm starting a company. That's insane. And I yeah, love that, it. That was one of the moments I think that I got the most emotional watching this was George talking about, I think it was episode two. They're all blurring together for me. I think it was the second episode where he was really talking about how he was talking about when he came back from shooting in England 
and how everything was just a disaster. Like yeah. everything was not the way he wanted it to be. He had to bring in a production supervisor. He brought in someone to follow him around to take notes. He got an assistant, all this stuff. And like he talked about how it like this is probably what rang true the most to me. It's like I'm someone that's always battled with really bad anxiety to the point that like I can make myself physically sick with anxiety. And to hear George Lucas talk about the fact that he sent himself to the hospital thinking he was having a heart attack and they were like, no, you're just really stressed out. Like you need mm -hmm. to chill out. I was just like, I, I could, I felt like I was being heard as someone mm -hmm. that thought that, oh, I'm just so weak to be dealing with this. And I'm like, here's George Lucas, one of the, if not most creative people I've ever seen on this planet. And he is so overwhelmed with everything that he has going on and doubting himself to a point that he thinks he's going to be kicked out of the industry. No one's going to care about him. All this stuff, like totally working against his own genius to the point that he sent himself to the hospital. Like, it. No, I'm not celebrating the fact that he got sick. It's just this kind of eye-opening experience that everyone goes through stressful moments and everyone goes through moments of doubt that you, you just don't know if you're capable of doing the things that you want to do. And I got emotional watching George talk about the fact that he was like, if you want to be in filmmaking or any creative type of role, the best thing you can do is be persistent, is to say, I'm going to do this and just do it and see what happens. And like, it'll work itself out. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, you've learned something like, just keep pushing. Um, and I was just sitting there like, He's right. George is right. And like, just like totally loved it. Those... Also, by the way, Josh Robert Thompson, right? That's his mm -hmm. name. Literally George. Oh, my God. I, I was know. watching this whole thing and all I could hear was Josh. I was it's like, the best impression for sure. It, even oh. the laughs, the <laughs> like yeah. The, yeah. everything. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the uh, There's no shot of like an. And apparently Lucas's thing was he wanted to document everything, which again, having that force. I love him, it. I'm yeah. so glad he did. Yeah. I, I was gonna no mention shot that too. Him, there's no shot of him back then where he doesn't look incredibly uneasy. So <laughs> like in the seventies, like he looks either like so stressed or just like there's not many shots of him smiling back then, which on the a flip side, I loved seeing him happy talking yes. now. Yeah, we yeah, never yeah. see yes. George Lucas happy now. He's always or him like, talking with Spielberg too, where she's like, "I've mm -hmm. got a James Bond movie for you." Like, just him being in his element was just such a delight yeah. to watch. Yeah, yeah, and his, yeah. his whole thing about give them uh, pizza and beer and they'll do anything. And in my in my review, I'm like, so George Lucas basically created ILM as though you're gathering your guy friends to help you move out of your house. <laughs> just like dump them pizza and beer and they'll do anything. I just, it's so like blue collar and and like ragtag cowboy it's it's so cool because i always think of hollywood as this like stuffy corporate and BS. it is this is yeah. just different yeah james what were you yeah, gonna say just that it to me they're uh, inspiring is a very good term to uh, put on this docuseries because it does very much make you feel like maybe big things are not necessarily out of the reach. Like they're trying to tell the story of how 
people who don't have any, you know, major awards or any sort of clout or anything like that, just like a group of friends hanging out, ended up being able to create something very big and it was very unexpected. I I actually, I mean, I you, you guys know, listeners know, like I, I did the band thing and like I did relate to a lot of this stuff in the sense of like there was a lot of when you know you're making music in your basement you're never expecting that you're going to be on a stage someday with like you know all the fans and stuff because you just don't you don't see that you're like we're not doing that we're just out to do our own thing and and when you know we're hanging out with these other bands who are also not doing anything special and we're just like getting along and having shows like things just grew up and then like you can look back at that and be like, man, there was a time when like this band and this band and this band and this band could just they were all just friends and hanging out and playing shows and doing things like that. And I very much was like this. This is so crazy to just think at the time like it was like um, George Lucas making deals that with, where ILM was only going to help his like friends, you know, and it's like, oh, my my buddy Steven is doing a project and nobody really knows you know, maybe, maybe a little bit of like, he's done a movie or something, but it wasn't like any big deal. It's like the way things moved together with a small group of friends and they were just all kind of helping each out, each other out. And it grew to something bigger and bigger and bigger and to a point where it's uh mythological. It's, it's crazy just to think back on how it was just a project, you know, that like one person was like, I'm going to make a movie, you know, some of those quotes in there were like, I quit my job and uh, you're going to have to pay the bills for a while because I'm going to make a movie. You know, that yeah. kind of stuff is just yeah. so nuts. Like um, it, they're just bold risks. Yeah. I don't know. It's crazy. I think my favorite person in, in the whole series was Harrison Ellen Shaw who did oh, the map yeah. paintings he yeah. was my favorite person, and every time he came on screen, I just adored every second. Um, here was a guy that thought that he had his future figured out and didn't want to do what his dad had done, and mm -hmm. then ended up doing just exactly that because it was like, oh, so I am good at this. <laughs> it's like fighting that like legacy or like what's kind of assumed yeah. that you're going to do. Um, but what I really enjoyed was hearing him talk about working with uh, Ralph McQuarrie. And he oh, yeah. said the perfect line, which I think like sums up my feelings oftentimes doing creative work with people that are just so talented, which you hear that a lot in this series is like everyone was just so and still is so inspired by the other people that you work with, like surround yourself with people that are better than mm -hmm, you, mm -hmm. because oftentimes you'll learn more. It will push you to evolve and stuff like that. I'm a strong believer in that. Um, and the fact that he said Ralph McQuarrie was intimidating, but inspiring was just like <laughs> such a great quote because there have been so many moments where I've been face to face with people that are just like, I feel like on another level. But here's a series where every single person that you're hearing from, like Phil Tippett and George Lucas and like all these people, they all kept being like, oh, I'm not good enough or oh, this mm -hmm, person's mm -hmm. better than me. So it kind of like really sets the level of like everybody has these thoughts. Everybody has these self-doubts. But it's the people that then take those self-doubts and use it to drive themselves to that next level or to be better 
Um, like Phil Tippett being like, I couldn't do this thing. I couldn't animate like this. So I spent every day animating. Yeah, that was this one. That was cool. Or Doug Chang, who said, I didn't think I was good enough to be. He set a goal for himself. Yeah, a goal for himself. Draw something new once a week, every week for a year. And then they ended up picking him as, as the head of art direction on the prequels. Like, it's insane. But. My favorite, my favorite part of the series was when uh, Harrison talked about how he was working with Ralph McQuarrie and he was bad at clouds. He was like, he drew clouds like an illustrator. I just, I hated his clouds. And so he'd be like, he's like, so I kind of like said to him, hey man, you're like really busy, which is so funny because we've all done this at work. You're like really busy. So why don't you just let me do this? Like, I'll take this. You go do what you want to do. And he's like, and then I did all the clouds. (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's just so funny and then george was like you know you don't have to do the clouds and he's like i'm doing the clouds like it was just such a funny moment and i and i loved the humor that harrison brought in where he's like he was working with all these young guys they put up a light so he wouldn't be disturbed and he's like no one paid attention to the light like he had mm-hmm. this just level of like fun and like it's not that serious yeah which no, i feel like oftentimes sure. i'm a huge person that's guilty of this is putting everything that I do and or working on in such a creative, serious place because I care so much that I forget to have fun. And I think that watching this, I had to remind myself, like, you're doing something that you enjoy doing. So just enjoy those moments because they're not going to always be around, not in like Mm -hmm. a negative light, but just in like life changes. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what I took away anyway. I definitely know, I definitely agree with what you were saying about the, like, surround yourself with those people or whatever. Um, Again, and not to bring it up, but, like, that's, that's, you know, how I've felt in the past where it's like, I can't believe I'm on this journey. And I felt like every person in this movie or this series was relatable because they all said the same thing, which is like, I didn't know why I was being pulled into this thing. I got there and I was like, everybody else is ridiculously talented. You know, every other person is great. And here I am. I don't, you know, what do I do? You know, how do I relate to this at all? And, you know, to hear that everybody else in the room is saying the same thing about that person, you know, it's, it's crazy because sometimes it's not even about like your talent. Like any one of us could be really talented at what we do. But you just never you're never in the right spot, you know, like um, with like what what job you're at. You're you're staying at that job, but you should be quitting and moving to this job because you'd be working with the right people over here or something. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. um, it's always kind of one of those things. And I feel like with a lot of people, especially creative people, that inevitably, unfortunately, ends up being the story for a lot of creatives. They think they're going down the right path and it just kind of never really ends up being anything. But sometimes lightning in a bottle magic happens and you get all the right people in the room and they work so well with each other that you get something like industrial light and magic. It's it again, I've said it a thousand Uh, times. It's wild. I think the series really points to that um, underdog type of thing where it's like nobody expects oh, their thing. Just you got to move forward and and uh, like like Disney always said, keep moving forward, always move forward. I think with when you're starting something from scratch, which you know what what they did here, because um, they had to do effects that didn't exist before in order for George Lucas to tell the story he wanted to tell. 
I'm not saying that works when you have an established company necessarily. You need to have experts once it's all uh, polished and you're, you're decades into it. And it's this juggernaut now. But I think when you're starting this thing, I think more important than the skills is the friendships. And I think that's what Kazan understood. He's like, this documentary is not about special effects. It's really about these people who pulled for each other, uh, were selfless, um it didn't have to do with i want to make sure i'm credited for this it was let me bring him in like lacy said uh, before about phil Tippett. he's like i don't really know how to do that you know let me bring in this guy because he's better at this um it's like that sort of hippie uh nature that they all were sort of bringing and they they they, they said they partied hard but they worked harder and stuff like that and um they there there's a charm there's a real charm to that and it's that whole thing about it's not that serious and you know as a creative brain like sometimes and there, there's people who are creative in all different sorts of spaces and like you know what we do is you know on a smaller scale compared to doing special effects for a movie but you know you'll be laying in bed and you'll think of something and then you'll be on the spot when you need to be and you can't think of something and then you see that story of joe johnson talking about how he finally came up with the design for the millennium falcon because his girlfriend at the time had uh, or his wife, I forget what he said, had these two plates and they stacked the two plates and he's like, let's try that out. Because George Lucas didn't want anything that had been done before. He wanted Star Wars to be real. He wanted it to be completely original. Uh, and I love that John Dykstra just goes, yeah, man, the Millennium Falcon, we used to call it the pork burger. And it's just like, <laughs> when you hear that from the people who made the freaking thing and then you juxtapose that against people today arguing about the Millennium Falcon and how, you know, you're supposed to pronounce it and stuff. It's just like, shut up. You know, these people who made this thing didn't take this stuff that seriously. Like Salacious B. Crumb is named because Phil Tippett was at a restaurant, had a few, bent over, realized his shoelaces weren't tied. And the way he said it sounded like salacious. It's just like, this is real. This is like when you watch the original trilogy, these people, their DNA is in this movie. The spirit of who these people were or it just entrenched in how these movies were made. It's there, it's permanent and it's forever. And it's just, they like, it all starts with George Lucas rebellious in nature, not sure what I'm doing, but I'm going to go a million miles an hour because I like going fast. And it's like, he, George Lucas is Ricky Bobby, but he's a much smarter, creative <laughs> version of it. He's like, I just want to go fast, you know? And that trickled down to, to, to the rest of them. And, but the one thing that is strange and it's a little like it made me sad was hearing like John Dykstra was like the only one not invited back, you know, for like this. For like it's all about personalities. Back. If yeah, you it, if you're holding he even admitted he's like I had, you know, I was a little volatile. So you can't sure. have someone like that in a creative environment where you're like, you know, someone is bringing that bad energy in and they just need someone then, with a different vibe. The, I, I would feel of, worse if he wasn't involved in the documentary process too. Right. Like right. if they were I just agree. talking about him, they're like, yeah, he was yeah. great and stuff, but then he never came back. To have him on camera, and you said he was he was mostly featured in the first episode, but he's in the whole thing. I mean, yeah. he pops yeah. up. It, I've, I felt very much like he got a little bit of a redemption not that, you know, like I'm sure in and out with all the people that were involved, like he has talked this through before, but for the average person that like 
watches that first or second episode to find out that he's not coming, that he didn't come back. Um, but then by the end of it, you know, he's still here and he's still talking about it and yeah. everything. It felt like, I don't know. I, he fe- it felt like he was just so important and it almost felt like it wasn't his fault. Just life took that away from him. Like he lost a family member or something, you know? I think the hardest part for me was watching the model shop go through the changes with technology and moving away from be like going to graphic design and graphics, computer graphics from modeling. I think that was the hardest part for me to watch and not necessarily just Phil Tippett. I'm saying the, the two people that were there, I forget what their names were, Mm -hmm. um, where they're talking about how, uh, Gene Bolt had left the model shop who worked on Labyrinth and then decided to get into computer graphics graphics because she knew where the industry was going and people yep. kind of got mad at her that she did it. Um, yeah. And James the, the is a big person. Yeah, right? James they is a big person it. here on the show that always says, like, if one of us succeeds, we all succeed. It's like one of those things where it's like, if she's moving on to something else that's super successful and she's doing a great job, you should be happy for her. But you kind mm-hmm. of got the sense from them that, like, there was a little bit of like a, mm, because they didn't want that to end, which, you know, when something's great, it's hard for that to happen. But then to have it come back full circle with the Mandalorian was such an joy to watch uh, because they talked about it in that initial panel at Celebration about building the Razor Crest and John Knoll building the whole model set for the camera. Um, But then we also finally got to see all the George footage of him on the set for the Mandalorian. I thought mm-hmm. it was interesting that we were getting a little bit more behind the scenes on some of the stuff that we haven't gotten fe- featuring yes. the volume. Like they were kind of explaining it more than I thought they've explained it in the past, which mm-hmm. we all know how it works. But I remember when we were watching some of those gallery episodes and I was going, I'm just really surprised they're not like showing you how it works. You know, That's- they also didn't let George mm. talk in the gallery series. They showed him there, but they didn't have him talking like they did in this. Like they had him full on talking to, yeah. to John Favreau, talking mm. to Kathleen Kennedy. Like it was, I felt like this whole series really f- was a joy to watch George talk about things with such happiness and, and passion. And yeah, and I, you know, it made me kind of wish that he would get back involved again. I'm not going to lie. Like, part of me really wants him to do something. I don't know what that would be or if he'd even want to do that. that that's He's not 78 what now. Like, it's tough. I know. Um, but he just seemed so happy to talk about it. And his memory is so on point. Like, he would remember exact quotes people had said to him mm-hmm. and, like, exact moments and, like, certain shots. And I think it's possible. Like, I mean, we are still talking about Ron Howard doing stuff. And I know they're different ages but it's not it's not crazy you know how old ron, ron howard now? was hilarious just talking about how he's like i don't know any 60s. of this i just like it <laughs> yeah it it and a lot of the things uh yeah, he's 68 i guess triggered he's a decade memories with our discussions with jw rinsler and i was connecting dots to things i remember him telling us to things other people were saying in this documentary it's like holy cow that's a that's that because of that and oh, I he probably the... would have been a part of this i bet or or, or uh, uh he definitely would have loved it if he wasn't um i yeah. know he was i would have loved to have him come on them. and talk about it i know rest in peace i, I mm-hmm. miss that guy a ton because mm-hmm. he was just so open and, and generous with stories and one He's of the so stories nice. was him talking about how people always wanted to please george lucas 
Remember him saying you that? You saw that in this show, too. That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. He's like, I don't know. It was something about George. People always wanted to please him. And like the John Knoll thing, him and back and forth. John's like, I just, I have to do this. That, I have to. <laughs> but also Phil Tippett with the, uh, the Tauntaun. And you see the video of him and George talking about it. And Lucas uh, certainly has a timidity to him in, in being next to somebody and telling them like, that's not good and stuff like that. But he had a certain way like, ah, well, with the background and stuff, it won't look as bad. And he then said Tip- it should Phil be Tippett darker saying, like six times to Phil Tippett. He was like, I think it should be darker. And Phil's like, oh, I don't know, blah, blah. And he's like, yeah, but if you know, if you made it darker. And by like the right. fourth time he said it, I was like, George, I don't think he's getting it. <laughs> Not getting but then it. Phil Tippett's like, I realized later on that if I made a physical model of something, I can easily more easily sell it to to Instead of George. 2D, because he's willing to he's yeah. easily and Oh my gosh. That's those the thing prequel that... storyboards where George with the highlighters, which we've seen clips of that before. Yeah. Yeah, but oh my god, those the storyboards. Documentary. Yeah. yeah, that Doug Chang yeah. did. But then just seeing it again, him going with all the highlighters and just marking them yeah. all up, and you're just as Doug Chang. I was just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And at the uh, light magic panel, that was the story Phil Tippett told. He was like telling about the the model thing, mm-hmm. and then the host Chris, uh, whatever his name is, was like MTV right, guy. Yeah, let's show another clip, and they show that clip telling the story, and they go back. The lights come back up. And remember that, James? Uh, Phil Tippett's like, had I known you were going to show that clip, I wouldn't have spoiled it with that story. And the people everyone just yeah. started laughing. But it was funny seeing him like tell it again. But uh, it's something about, you know, people, J.W. Ritz was telling us, people always just wanted to make George happy. They always wanted to please George. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that is a power. Like, he just is this infectious person. They, it's because they believe in him and what he's doing. And if you don't believe in somebody... You're not going to go the extra mile or run through a wall for them. And it seems like everybody who worked for George Lucas, I'm sure there were some outliers, ran through walls for that man because they wanted his approval. And I think that is so incredible hearing all of those stories from all the different people in this documentary, including John Dykstra, who butted heads with George a lot, did want to make him proud or make him happy or, or give him what he wanted to see his vision through. And and going back to Rinsler saying that to me, I'm like, that's amazing that he experienced that, shared that with us, and then I'm seeing it realized from these people he put together. It's just th- that level of connectivity just like blew me away. I was like, this is freaking amazing. And look what he, what George did for people. I'm sure there are many instances that we we will never know about of things George had done for people like Joe Johnston, where he was like, look, I can't do this anymore. And George was like, I'll send you to UCLA. I'll pay for it. Like, yeah. I'll keep you half <laughs> so salary. Cool. You go to film school. And then he became a director. Like, who else have you ever heard of that would do that, that would put their friends through school and do other things to get them to a point that it's like, it's not about money. It's not about ego. It's just me wanting to see my friends succeed. Right. Not and many then, people would do it's that. It's like Scott's Tots, but for real. <laughs> right. And now oh, no. every time you watch Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, you can think about that, that that yeah. movie exists because George Lucas. Or Jumanji. Kind of let, he directed he Jumanji let, too. Yeah. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was his first movie though. So you really yeah. see him cut his teeth. Like George let him go. And that's a weird, like I want to, I wish I could talk to George Lucas and understand more of how his like personality works or his brain works or his insecurities because usually a person in power or the main driving force of something 
there's a fear of people leaving you. At least I, you know, and I've, I've always sort of felt that way. I've always hated the idea of people like leaving me and going on and, and whatever. And he just like says, no, go. I get it. So just go. Like he didn't want to hold people in if they didn't Not want to be there. Not just go. Something. Go and let me set you up in the best it's possible incredible. way for success. It's truly, yeah. it's truly amazing. And mm-hmm. I, I think when we keep talking about George Lucas and that just goes to show uh, how good of a job Lawrence Kasdan did on this thing. Like he made sure um, that the, he spent a lot of time sh- shining light on things that people didn't know about George Lucas, whether it's like you, James, with the, the car crash or, um, you know, hit maybe more of his upbringing, what his real initial idea with Star Wars was, which is like drag racing in space because he thought 2001 A Space Odyssey was slow and boring. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of stuff is the good stuff to me. That's the that's the icing in the Oreo. You know, I just I I can't get enough of of that stuff. But uh, hearing that there was like two for the original Star Wars, there were two sort of worlds. There was him in the UK having panic attacks, filming these scenes with these actors, and then in LA, th- these like nuts just like trying to put this stuff together and not getting a lot done. And hearing George Lucas like pissed off, that was another thing that was pretty cool. Hearing the audio clip of him like saying like, "What have you been doing this whole time?" <laughs> like, they, like seeing these sides of George Lucas, I think is like so different. It almost makes like Empire of Dreams like not matter. And I don't want to say it doesn't, but it just feels like it's a a Bud Light version of this documentary. Now it's just like they really go deep. Like you said, Lacey, like the personalities and stuff like that. You really feel like you're in the room getting to know these people for something that happened 45 years ago. Just incredible foresight to document all of it and for Kazan to put it together the way he did. It's just, oh, man, I got to use the word magical. It is. Yeah. And another big thing that I took away from it was that this place, ILM, allowed a bunch of different people with a love for movies to come together and to just be really passionate about those things like you had someone that loves models they're gonna do models and that's what they love you know someone does the camera work that's what they want to do um to the point that these people loved something so much and were inspired by the generations before them that they then inspired the generations after them, like Doug Chang and John Knoll. John Knoll's whole segment was wonderful, and I would love to chat with him or hang out with him or anything. John Knoll is awesome. I he, think the, him talking about his journey of being like really young and looking up to these guys, and then like getting interviewed at UCLA and inviting the lady back to his apartment to see his camera rig and like just stuff like that. When we talked with Hal Hickel on the show about how it isn't an act, like that's just who John Knoll is. Like he would go home after work and go build a camera rig or he would go home and build a whole new software program. Like that's just where his brain works. And then you hear that his, his dad was like a nuclear engineer or something you're like ah okay genetics great awesome um but just to hear him and other people like doug chang totally geek out about walking down the hall for the first time and seeing dennis Mirren and being like oh my god that's dennis he's so iconic and like it's just so crazy because now looking at it at us walking by john noel i'd be like oh my god that's john noel like we walked by doug chang at celebration and we were like right that's doug chang and we waved to him like 
it's like it's you're right it's like a uh, lion king he became now <laughs> he's he's mufasa you know and rose duignan i think i'm pronouncing her name right but she's the one you were talking about uh he invited her to go see his like camera rig and set up and i i loved that she goes hey yeah we would kind of get a read on these guys and like what they were really all about one guy was like i want to be a film director and she's like you're out and she's like john yeah. Nolly's like look at what i put together and she's like that's the guy that's the guy we want. We want someone not just who's look real. at look at what I came to. Why don't you come to my house and see it? And she's like, "I'm not going to your house, but I'll hire That's so you." Funny, yeah. It's like a <laughs> yeah, little, little I mean, kid. I, show me. Let me show you my toy. I, I make I make connections with with music and band stuff all the time. But yeah, if you're putting together a band and everybody says, uh, "I really want to be the singer," you know what I mean? It's like. You, you get out of here, kind of thing. But like, if you can find the people that are like, "I freaking love bass guitar." You know, it's like, that's yeah. who you want to be your bass player, right? Yeah. It's like, uh, it makes sense when you put together the right people that just absolutely loved their craft and exactly what they're doing. And I, I think one of the more interesting things here is like, um, you know, we, we, we did get this luckily cataloged because George Lucas had the foresight to go to be filming all this stuff while it was happening. And it's, it is interesting to think that, you know, maybe this isn't like, the perfect area of film. Maybe there was like an era in the thirties too, where they were like, you could almost do a documentary back then where it'd be like, and then that's when everything changed when so-and-so came out with audio. And now there were audio and movies. And we thought this was going to change it. You know what I mean? It's like life happens that way. And it's, but it is so cool because there's a nostalgic part of this where they're naming these movies and they're like, well, the next thing we did was Indiana Jones, <laughs> you know? And it's yeah. like, it's it means so much. And then after that, we did E.T. And, you know, and this and this and this, and they're naming these movies. And it just felt like the very next project was always, and they named tons in there where they're like, I don't know, I was working on some Back thing to the called, Future. Yeah, but these Goonies. like little random things, right? Oh, yeah. they, they did name a couple of those, but it did feel like every project that they work on the next one was just also massive and huge and changed everything and was such a big leap forward in every every stage and i think that's interesting we didn't really talk about it but the layout of the episodes is sort of like the first two are star wars Mm -hmm. and then three uh begins the empire strikes back and everything from that period uh, and that's episodes three, four, and five. And then episode six is like, now we're at the prequels. Now we're yeah. episode one and moving forward. And it's kind of split between like episode one and the prequels, as well as like the Mandalorian and the volume and everything. Right. Which surprisingly enough, I didn't on. care that much about that, that part. I really didn't either. My favorite two episodes were episodes one and two. Yeah. Yeah, like the, the 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 volume stuff. I was like, "This is awesome." I know enough but about it. Yeah. I man, I so I'm probably the the biggest takeaway there because I liked I I liked all of it equally. Like I very much enjoyed the original Star Wars stuff. Made me feel like I I need to know this. This stuff is really cool. I can't believe history was being made. And then, like I said, three through five were every other movie. And it was like interesting to see how all the players were moving and all the parts were moving and how the poltergeist was thing was insane. The yeah, house exactly. imploding was uh, insane. Yeah. And obviously that section of it is the whole Jurassic Park movement and the like Terminator two and how they're like replicating 
and how they're moving into computer graphics and all that. But I really did just find just as much interest in that fifth episode to think, um, it, it, it felt resurgent a little bit for me in like, we all, we know as star Wars fans who are like prequelists, uh, you know, like we understand that we apologize. We're apologetic for the, the prequels, but it, it's, it feels good to, watch five episodes of the show and see how it led to this movie and this movie's still breaking like crazy barriers down. Like every single thing they did in that movie was like, Oh, it's never been done before. Can it even be done? And they still managed to pull it off. And it just felt so triumphant because every other movie felt like there was like one really big scene. Like, how are yeah. we going to do that Terminator scene? How are we going to do that Abyss scene? How are we going to do uh, a moving dinosaur? Like, and I know that was a lot of scenes, but it just felt like they they always had their hurdle and they 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 got the shot done. And to lead up to the Phantom Menace and just saying like, all of it, all of it was ridiculous. Like there wasn't yeah. anything in it that was a normal thing. Everything had to break down the barriers. And, uh, and I still found it just as fascinating because I, I have been thinking, I also in my own mind pictured the next step of visual effects would be this thing. And then it came true. It was the volume. I was like, you have to, you have to have your television line up with your camera so that your television projects the distance behind your subject. I pictured that even in my head. And so I think when I'm watching I'm a sucker the for volume, models, though. Every time I saw a model or like they did something physically, I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. So when I see the volume, and it might be because I'm taking it for granted because we've heard about it so much for the past few years. Mm-hmm. It's just one of those things that like going back to like Andor coming up. I'm so excited for Andor because they're shooting in actual locations. Like I understand yeah. the technological advancement and the crazy like work and brain power and even just the the concept of the volume how insane it is and amazing it is to me the fact that they were like oh we raised these bikes in et by a rope like that to me i just love that oh i love that more what she's laughing her ass off explaining that it's so funny yeah i i think there's a personal and endearing quality when it comes to special effects like that and i really like hearing those stories but I do also, I, I I can feel like when I watch those visual effects, I go, okay, I, I can see through it a little bit. You know, it doesn't hold up anymore. I can kind of see that that does sort of feel like they just lifted them up on ropes. And it was probably really mind-blowing at the time. And it still looks fine, you know. But it's like you can almost see it like a magic trick where you know how it works. And it's like when I get to the Mandalorian stuff and the volume stuff, that stuff still fascinates me today. In like when I'm, you know, using my phone and putting it in a thing and I'm doing AR and like those types of things just interest me so much that when I see it at its absolute peak in the volume, I'm going that blows my mind. I I can't believe like that's happening, you know? Yeah, so uh, I I got just as much out of that and watching them walk around that and explain that technology and I know that technology but I don't know. I think they did a really good job even more so than the like the gallery for instance. The gallery was about 
the characters and you know how everything became that it talked a little bit about the technology but i was disappointed that we didn't hear as much about the volume as we did i i want to know what stuff they're doing like i brought it up with hal hickle like how are you guys doing the deep fake stuff like that stuff is mind blowing to me. I want to I learn think, more about that, how the technology is being pushed yeah, forward. And, and it feels like years from now, people are going to look back at like the deep fake dude, you know, and he's going to be in an interview and he's going to be like, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just messing around and it looked like Luke Skywalker to me. And then I, here I, I work at ILM now, you know, and it's like they brought me in because sure. this and they'll, they'll, you'll see it in a documentary. This is what I showed them. And, and it changed everything. And, and we'll look at deep fakes and everything else. Like it was this crazy new advancement. I don't know. I'm just all, I, I was just as much interested in the final episode as I was the first. I think That's all cool. the episodes were interesting. That's not what Absolutely. I'm saying. Yeah. I just think I took away more than the kind of technical stuff. I took away more the personal stories of people and who they are yeah, and was, sure, how they sure, interact sure, sure. with and just kind of the human aspect behind these projects that I think oftentimes gets overlooked for the grandeur of the technological advancements and the awards and the, oh, look what this looks like, you know? And you could see that progress throughout the series as well, that it started with a, hey, look at this cool thing we did together as a team and how we've worked together to do it. And it turned more into, can we make this dinosaur run? Like you see it in the series that it happens that way. Like it, it changed yeah. from who was doing it to what they were doing. Yeah. And look, it's cool. It's crazy. I love movies. I've loved movies my whole life. It's not going to change. And this, they're part of the reason why I do. Um, but there's just something so funny and cool about seeing George Lucas talk about all these different players and for the moments and beats that Lawrence Kasdan put in there of like the guy Spaz talking about him with George Lucas and him being like, I don't think he liked me very much. And then it cutting to George and George being like, Spaz was very like, right. that's funny. Yeah, that's it so is. funny. And they didn't have to include that, but they did. And it brought me back to the impression of George again, because I was like, there's that snarky George. that's like, eh, he's he's a and he was more he's way more like I'm going to tell you how it is. than I initially thought before, like talking to Judy Rinsler and all that stuff, I always thought George Lucas was kind of more of a timid, guarded guy. But they do bring up he loved <laughs> Phil Tippett and John Berg, and he really liked those two a lot. And I think he appreciated those two so much because they loved doing something that he hates, which he hates long drawn out tedious processes. And you get that when he's talking about the film editing process and they were like, George hated film editing. He couldn't stand it. And because of that, he envisioned digital filmmaking. And it's like, people always think like creation comes from inspiration and just, having a dream and and no it's usually i don't want to do this anymore. it's some yeah most of the, a lot of times <laughs> it's how do i figure out a better way to do this and like james maybe to your point about like seeing yeah the new technologies and stuff because yeah seeing george lucas walk around with a starbucks cup in the volume saying like this is kind of what i was always thinking in my head and it's just like that's mm -hmm. so funny but him talking about the film editing stuff and just be like i hate it i can't stand it the the, the it's so tedious and there's got to be a better way to do this and and then he's like, why the, can't we do it this way? Why can't this the, exist? Make this the volume, exist. The volume thing, that. 
Yeah, the volume thing felt to me like it was the perfect ending because it felt to me like a a, a movie, almost almost like Star Wars. It's funny, I was trying to think of an example. It's like Star Wars kind of works like this. It's like all of ILM or all of the original people who were involved in ILM were sort of like the prequel trilogy and it was like Anakin. And like, you know, it was like leading up to something and, and it was what it was. But it's like Anakin never... Anakin reached a point and then it took Luke to go like the extra mile to be better than Anakin. You know what I mean? And it's like, anytime you ever see like, okay, maybe so-and-so didn't make it. And maybe that's a little bittersweet, you know, Phil Tippett had to put a stop or he had, or they had to like give up on those things and move forward with other things. Or they got put out by industry moving forward and younger people and, or different people, you know, whatever. But that, that, that realization that George came in and said, you know, he's older now and he's saying like, this is what I wanted to do. This is almost like I'm watching, I'm looking at my son now who's accomplished so much more than what I could ever do back in the day when this stuff didn't exist. We were held back by the technology. This is what we pictured. Now it exists. Now it's real. You know, that's, that's why I, I liked it as a cherry, cherry picked like piece to kind of put at the end like this is a great place to end because this is sort of like his dream envisioned right and then like he like Lacey said at the top like the very end is phil Tippett talking about his daughter and um just the the very her saying she can't play with toys anymore that's heartbreaking and he said work in movies and you could be a kid forever and i was like oh god damn that's and you just want to give him a hug and the, you like, just want to be, be in movies <laughs> i just want to move to yeah. hollywood <laughs> i i think for some people the the takeaway from this documentary will be like james you're saying like the technology and i love the advancement of the technology and i love that you know they've taken it this far and uh i i can't see the flaws and stuff like that and then like for me i see like lawrence kazan sort of saying like here's this but then let me tell you this story about mm-hmm. this person and it's like Phil Tippett talking about how he made a fake severed finger so that they would move so to freak out people so that they would move them out of that hallway to a better part of the building. And I'm like, that's the good stuff, man. Like the seeing getting, I think the purpose of this documentary was to understand the different personalities and the human side of all of this stuff that made this stuff work. And he said as much, so I'm not like uncovering anything here, but I, I, because I went into the documentary knowing him saying that and why he made it, I was able to watch the entire thing through that lens and really just get to know these people. And I felt like I was getting to know the, all of these people. And it's really interesting seeing like this, you know, young, good looking, his whole life ahead of him, John Dykstra in 1977. And then you got this old man with a white ponytail uh, reflecting back on it. And you just see their journeys throughout all this time. And it's like, yeah, you were able to travel time. You get to spend time with them then and then hear them talk about it mm-hmm. now. And for them, it probably felt that way a lot. I bet a lot of them looked at this stuff and hadn't seen this stuff maybe ever or mm-hmm. heard some of these audio files ever and said, oh, I can't believe I said that. I can't. I don't remember being there. You and I worked on that thing together. So that like the, the whole aspect of the human side of this stuff and, and what it takes to to come together and be like a family and like, like, uh, like Rose DeWignan said, like we were the rebel Alliance before the rebel Alliance. Like 
we were a ragtag group. We weren't this polished Hollywood VFX group that was going around then. We were mechanics. We were machinists. We knew how to like make gears work and it we turned into this. And there's just there really is something just very inspiring about taking the chance. Lucas taking a chance on them, but also them just taking a chance with their lives. Like imagine like they were a 19-year-old being like, "Hey dad, I'm going to go work on this movie." What movie? Some space opera movie about drag racing spaceships you're not going to go to college no i'm going to go work on this thing but you don't work in movies yeah but i'm going to try it like the fact that there was a flyer I don't think they saying, were telling kids to go to college in the 70s but, but or go do something like go become a plumber or something you know like sure. do something that you mm-hmm. can actually make money doing and like i love that they were like there was a flyer in the college hall for like come work on the space movie fuck freaking star wars that's amazing that blows my mind like this whole thing blew my mind at how accessible it was for them and how they were able to make it happen without having the know-how it's just so so inspiring to to, like take a chance try something fake it till you make it as people say i just i love that they they gave us this because i think there's gonna be there's plenty of documentaries about special effects there's there's they're all over youtube they're everywhere i mean hearing james cameron say Star Wars inspired him to make movies. And seven years later, we got the Terminator. That's crazy. He was a truck driver and saw yeah. Star Wars. And then he was the one that was like, I'm quitting my job. I'm doing this. He yeah, I'm gonna go make a movie. was a truck driver, saw Star Wars, left Star Wars, <laughs> quit his job, went to the library, picked up how to direct books, and then became a movie director. Um, I I think my my takeaway from this documentary is to... Like George said, be persistent in your dreams and your goals. Um, don't be afraid to like change course and not assume that you're supposed to be going a certain path and things tend to work out the way they're supposed to work out. If if you want something and care care enough, you'll you'll get there. Um, always help others to see their dreams as well and to succeed. Yeah. I think there that's the thing that stuck out for the first set of episodes I think more than the later episodes is that hey we're all collaborating they kept saying that word collaboration collaboration stepping in when needed to help others I think more than now nowadays than ever we need more helping of each other and I think that's what you got from this documentary but just not giving up on what your vision is is something mm-hmm. that I took away from this, which we already, we already mm-hmm. knew from George, but I think this really let that shine for him of like, he had a vision, he saw it through, and if he couldn't do it, he found the people to help him get there. But the idea that he let these people find a place that they could be themselves. And I feel like oftentimes people are more likely to hide something that they're super passionate about or that they really, really enjoy. Um, but you don't need to do that. It's, you can share that part of you with the world. And you get that at the end when Phil Tippett talks about how his daughter was like, oh, I feel like I'm too big to do this anymore. I can't do this. Yeah. yeah. That's never been the case with me. And I, and I hope that my daughter gets the same kind of viewpoint of like, just do what you want to do, no matter where that, you know, see where the path takes you kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. James, any final thoughts? Yeah, I... You know, I, before this documentary came out, I started getting into that uh, YouTube channel, The Corridor Crew. And, you know, I watch those guys talk about visual effects all the time and, and, you know, how they're so passionate about it. And 
watching their channel like blow up too, which has you know been pretty crazy. I'm like, man, people really are into this stuff. But because I've started looking at that things more intently, the special effects side of it, I think that is what I mean. I'm a hundred percent in agreement. I think that is the the story of this documentary is amazing. It's about the people, right? It absolutely is. But there's another side of it too, which is like the the documenting of how special effects have changed oh, yeah. and how they're always pushing the boundaries, right? So that aspect of it for me is very interesting because, you know, say what I've recently come to terms because I'm excited for the next Avatar movie because like say what you will about the Phantom Menace, like the story, the hype, you know, of it or whatever, or like Avatar, the first one, like, oh, it's not even really that good of a movie. You know, the story was blah, 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 blah. I've kind of come around to man. Sometimes these movies are made so that just to showcase that it's possible, you know, like what boundaries can we break? What walls can we tear down? What impossible thing can we do? There's even like a, you know, you know like the, the uh, like a gimbal, like a steady cam mm -hmm. kind of a thing. The guy who invented that uh made it popular because he made a video and he released the video and you can still watch it on youtube it's called uh i think it, i can't forget the number but it's like 11 or 12 impossible shots and it went viral because he just put 12 shots in it that no one had ever seen ever in special effects they're like how how is how is that being done it, it didn't mm -hmm. make any sense and he didn't tell you what was doing it but he, he let the footage speak for himself. And now like thinking about what James Cameron is working on and what John Favreau is working on and, you know, everybody else, you know, these in industry Titans who are really motivated. Yes. By story, by characters, by, you know, big franchise money, production, all that stuff. But it's just, sometimes it's like about like, what can we break down? What's the next barrier? What can I move beyond? And maybe the story and the characters and everything else doesn't live up to it, but there are things about this that people, that somebody younger watching the movie is going to go. Now I know just like what George said about the prequels when he saw Jurassic Park, he goes, now I know I can do it. Now I know it's ready. Now I know I need to right. get into filmmaking. I need to do it because I saw that and I thought, I want to do that. I want to I want to beat that or whatever it is. The special effects as aspect of this documentary is really cool because you get to see every step of the way it breaks down. And and by the way, I wanted to mention this too. It's it's so good if you haven't seen it that it has a 100% critic rating on Rotten Tomatoes and a 100% audience score. Yeah. It's um, it's like not a single person does not recommend this. It's it's special. And to think like, you know, I'm going to be 40 in two months. And, you know, Richard Edlund, he's one of the more entertaining uh, people that they talked about, one of the founding members. We didn't, I don't know that we really talked about him much, but he was, I looked him up, he's 82. Um, this year and he was like 37 when he did Star Wars which is his first real movie and John Dykstra picked him out because he like knew him from USC and doing like experimental films so just think like it's never too late to start something too so if you're Same like listening with, uh, to this and Carl Weathers right right mm -hmm. and it's never yeah never too late to start something 
don't be afraid to do something that you're you don't know how to do or you're not a pro at just try it give it a shot take a risk um because we only have one life to live and do you want to just live the life someone already lived before you and call it a and and, and be unfulfilled or do you want to take some shots and that's uh two big takeaways for me is that you know it's never too late to to take a shot on something and the fact that Lawrence Kazan took a documentary about all this amazing stuff and visual effects and was able to make an inspiring story for his grandkids and generations that are that our generation and generations that are going to come after us our kids are going to be able to watch this stuff and be inspired i think that this thing is going to mean a lot to a lot of people for a very very long time so i always loved Lawrence Kazan but got to say thanks to this guy to come back and and do this cuz this probably took a lot of effort and a lot of work and i think he hit a home run like you said James 100 and 100 on those rating scales so just incredible and i do love how it ended i can watch that a billion times so um phil tippett come on the podcast if, if you if you hear this <laughs> please um, don't. please all right so i mean we can go on and i'm sure we'll reference this uh going forward without without question as uh, we do future episodes about anything in Star Wars. So it's a gift. Uh, it's an eternal gift for for fans of Star Wars, fans of movies, fans of uh, humanity. Um, so thank you to everybody. We hope you enjoyed our take on it. Um, and we want to know what you think. What you know? What were your highlights or takeaways from Light and Magic? We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Um, certainly uh, quite an achievement and uh, i hope it wins awards like this thing is just fantastic and oh, yeah. cherry on the sunday like we said has to be seeing a happy george lucas today uh reflecting back on his legacy because i just feel like we've seen so many interviews with him where he just seems like bummed out or sad or, or ticked off so defensive i would say defensive mm-hmm. yeah uh it's really cool to see him pleased to see his like legacy and talk about it so so awesome um that thanks uh, again everybody for listening and watching uh make sure you subscribe to the show on your preferred platform uh whether that's spotify uh apple Podcasts, soundcloud wherever um share it with a friend also youtube.com slash star wars news videos uh, make sure you're going to star wars news net for all of your star wars news reviews editorials information and more uh you can find me on twitter at johnny hoey writing and editing at star wars news net and my uh other movie podcast where i don't talk about star wars called just like the movies uh, on all your audio podcast apps. Lacey. People can find me on Twitter and Instagram talking about this documentary series forever. <laughs> Lacey Gillard. Uh, James. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, both at Myra Trunks. All right, folks. Uh, we will be back with you, as always, on Monday with another episode right here on the Resistance Broadcast. See you around, kids.